Bodhisattva ceremony and the precepts, which we just we just had the Bodhisattva ceremony, uh, and uh, but I'm going to sing you a song first. I haven't done a song in here for for quite a while, and I just was I was moved by all of your voices, uh, by the chanting and the bells and the uh, our collective recitation of the. Uh, of the, of the precepts in the Bodhisattva ceremony. So it leads me to want to sing a song. I hope that's okay. Let's see if I can manage all of the stuff. So the song that I'm going to sing is uh, it's a meditation instruction uh, that was offered to us by the great uh, singer and songster Leadbelly, how do you lead better? Uh, and uh, he was from Louisiana and Texas and was just an incredible musician uh, growing up in the African-American uh, musical tradition in the South. And uh, I discovered his music, uh, I think, like 62 years ago. Uh, they had some of his recordings in the library where I was growing up and it just He's been a major figure in my musical life since then. So I'm going to sing a song of his. It's called Relax Your Mind. And I'll start with the chorus and you can sing it along with me. I'll sing it once and then I'll sing it again and then I'll do the rest of the song. This is not going to work. Play slide guitar with the. <laughs> no, like, I can't even find my sleeve here. This is not as easy as it looks, you know. Years of professional training. Relax your mind, relax your mind, it'll make you feel 
feel so fine. Sometimes, well, you've got to relax your mind. So you can sing that. Relax your mind, relax your mind. It'll make you feel so fine. Sometimes, you've got to relax your mind. It's good. When that light turns green, you gotta push down on the gasoline. Sometimes you got to relax your mind. Relax your mind, relax your mind. It'll make you feel so fine. Sometimes you got to relax your mind. So this is meditation instruction and driver ed at the same time. When that light turns red, you better push down on the brakes instead. Sometimes you got to relax your mind. Relax your mind, relax your mind. It'll make you feel so fine. Sometimes you got to relax your mind. Have no texting, you got to relax your mind. Relax your mind, relax your mind, it'll make you feel so fine. Sometimes you got to relax your mind. Once a man crossed the railroad track, oh boy, he forgot to relax. That was one time. You know he should have relaxed his mind. Relax your mind, relax your mind. It'll make you feel so fine. Sometimes you got to relax your mind. Relax your mind, it'll make you feel so fine. Sometimes you got to relax your mind. Good, good singing. So this morning we had the Bodhisattva ceremony. And for some of you, this is the first time, when did we, have we done it recently? I can't remember. That's a shame, we did that as a shame. but I don't think everybody was chanting, were they? Anyway, we're going to begin our regular recitation of this monthly now, which is great. 
Um, and I noticed just, you know, with the passage of time, the last time I did this, I could do all the bows. And now I have to let go of that for the moment. Maybe it'll, maybe I'll be able to do it again. And maybe not, maybe not, but that's okay. It's the spirit and the energy that we put into our activities, which is the most important. So this Bodhisattva ceremony, the form of it, is, is ancient in our Zen tradition, and it goes back before that. In the Zen tradition, um, if you read the Platform Sutra, which goes back to 8th century China, in the middle of that there's uh, what's often called formless repentance ceremony, uh, which is this. It's very familiar. Once you read through it, you'll see pretty much the same thing. And this is one of our, you know, this is one of our one-size-fits-all ceremonies. So if you have uh, lay ordination or priest ordination, basically we do all of these parts of the ceremony. It's there embedded in it. If you get married, it's embedded in it. When you die, if you're a layperson, the heart of the funeral for a layperson is the same thing. It's the ordination ceremony. It's the, it's the Bodhisattva ceremony. So in each of these ceremonies, uh, these ordinations, wedding, funeral, uh, the precepts are recited and transmitted to us. Uh, so doing this ceremony is a kind of affirmation of uh, our vows, our vows to practice. And I just want to, because it was new to quite a number of you, how many of you were doing it for the first time? Yeah, a number. Uh, so we do this monthly, and it has, let me just lay out what the parts of it are. It begins with confession. Uh, oh, I should say, and we'll get into this more, this is what's known as the, this is, in Japanese, it's called the Ryaku Fusatsu. Uh, it's the abbreviated uh, ceremony of repentance and renewal. Um, and so it begins with confession and repentance. All my ancient tangled karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, I now fully avow. So you own, we own what our karma has been. We own what missteps we may have made or what, what in what ways we haven't been able to maintain the precepts. And we sort of clear the deck at the beginning of the ceremony. Uh, and I think in a sense the abbreviated part uh, is that we are not uh, particularizing or, or saying uh, what our errors have been in the previous month. We're just saying all my ancient tangled karma, not just in the previous month, but from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. So going back through time, 
uh, I now fully avow. So it begins with repentance, begins with confession and repentance. And then the rest of it is a renewal of those vows. So the next section uh, is the homages. Uh, we pay homage to uh, the Buddhas before Buddha, the Bodhisattvas, and all of the unknown Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, uh, some of whom may be personal to us. And having paid our respects, we then uh, recite the Bodhisattva vows. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. And of course, uh, as I said, I think, uh, I think the other day, there's a built-in conundrum in, those, uh, in all those bodhisattva vows, as they're vast. Beings are numberless, I can't even count them, but I'm going to save them all. How do you do that? Delusions are inexhaustible. So like one continuous mistake. That's what our lives are. Uh, but I vow to end them and so forth. Each one of them is positing something. Each one of the Bodhisattva vows posits something incredibly vast. And yet we embrace it and we direct our lives towards, uh, towards each of these vows, towards the accomplishment of each of them. And what we have to do then, we have uh, and the recitation of what uh, has evolved as the 16 Bodhisattva precepts, and that breaks down into three groups. Uh, the first considered precepts are the refuges, uh, where we go for safety in our practice, in our hearts, in our lives, uh, with each other. Refuge in the Buddha, our enlightened nature, Refuge in the Dharma, which you could call the teachings. You could also call the Dharma natural law. You could call the Dharma the way it is. Uh, so take refuge in Buddha, take refuge in Dharma, and take refuge in Sangha. Sangha is what supports us. Uh, it is uh, this community. It's the community of all beings. And perhaps it's the community of all of all beings and things. Thich Nhat Hanh 
you know, famously said that the, uh, the next Buddha will be the Sangha. And actually, um, as I was studying this week, uh, in our tradition, uh, you know, we, we have this um, perception of warm hand to warm hand. So we have a perception that the that the Buddha transmitted the Dharma to Mahakashapa and then to each ancestor up until ourselves. Uh, in other records, particularly in the early Pali records, uh, the Buddha does not have a successor. Uh, you know, he had disciples, he had enlightened disciples, but he didn't pass, in, in that record, he didn't pass his, the particular authority to any one person. So what was the authority? The authority was the whole community of people who were holding the precepts. So the precepts were actually the authority. Um, when I received Dharma transmission from Sojin Roshi in, um, boy, 25 years ago, 1998, uh, and you'll see a version of it, those of you who have had lay ordination, there's a document that we received called the Kechimiyaku, it's a bloodline, and there's a text at the bottom on the text that Sojin wrote to me, it says, on the 15th day of September in the year of 1998 of the common era, monk Hakuryu Sojin Daiosho in the inner room of Zen Shinji, which is Dasahara, affirmed and revealed to me, Ozan Kushiki, that's me, that the perceptual vein of the Buddha is the one great causal condition of our lineage gate. So the precepts are the essential authority. So going back historically, uh, we see that uh, what seemed like a radical statement by Thich Nhat Hanh, that the next Buddha would be Sangha, is actually uh, kind of the rearticulation of a historical fact. So we recite the refuges, refuge in Buddha, refuge in Dharma, refuge in Sangha. Then we recite the pure precepts. Uh, I vow to avoid all evil. I vow to do all good. I vow to save all beings. Those are very, those are sort of broad framing of the precepts. And then uh, we recite the, the 10 uh, pure mind precepts or grave precepts. Vow not to kill, not to steal, uh, not to misuse sexuality and so forth. Uh, 
and then we've re completed our recitation of the 16 precepts and of course as we do with all of our uh, services we dedicate merit in, at the end uh, we dedicate the merit of our chanting the merit of our practice to all, all sentient beings so that's the form of the ceremony there's a lot of vowing there's a lot of repetition and chanting And it stands, when you look at Suzuki Roshi, Suzuki Roshi, my understanding, did not, did not really teach the precepts in a, uh, in a very detailed way. He had a broad embrace of the precepts. He wasn't uh, in any contradiction to them. But what Suzuki Roshi said was, the real meaning of precepts is not just rules, but it's rather our way of life. When we organize our life, there we see something like rules. So as soon as you get up, to wake up completely, you watch your face. This is a precept. So how you keep your precepts is how you organize your life. And how you organize your life, he says, is how you practice zazen. If you think, I have to observe this precept and that precept, ten precepts one by one, that is wrong practice. Precepts should be observed without any idea of observing. In short, when you observe precepts in the same way as you practice zazen, that is perfect precepts transmitted by Buddha from Buddha to us. I think that's, that's something at the heart of his teaching and his faith in zazen. And uh, we can be deeply encouraged by that and yet perhaps we do need some guidelines and rules you know by extension for example there have been active discussions you know we have a lot of we represent center and a lot of places have uh, documents with ethical guidelines and uh, procedures for when those guidelines have been uh, transgressed. And at least in some of the discussions that I've been party to, you know, people would say, well, the precepts are enough. Evidently not. So just as Suzuki Roshi's encouragement that the heart of our spirit of our zazen is our sufficient expression of the precepts uh, we find 
it really helpful to have the articulation of what we did in the Bodhisattva ceremony. And this goes back to the earliest days of Buddha, of the Sangha. Uh, at least monthly, uh, in the early Sangha, there was what was called the Upasata, uh, day of observance of the precepts, the Vinaya. Uh, and it's a day for cleansing of the mind, which results in inner calm and joy. And it often took place, it took place often at the new moon and the full moon, and almost always at the full moon. And it's still happening. Uh, monks and nuns gather and they recite uh, what's called the Patimokkha. Uh, and the Patimokkha is, is this collection of uh, Vinaya precepts. Uh, Vinaya uh, is a collection of rules uh, in sort of graduated importance from the most serious ones, which would entail expulsion from the Sangha to ones that have to be confessed, repented, and sort of cleansed in order to sit in the circle of Sangha. Uh, and this word Vinaya, which is what we translate as precepts, one of the words we translate as precepts, uh, the root of it means uh, uh, to lead away. Ni means to lead. Uh, and V means away. So it's leading away from, from ignorance uh, and from passion and hatred. Uh, we often translate it as discipline, but it's really leading away from those things towards a wholesome life. Now, the origin of the Buddha's precepts is wonderful to consider. Uh, in the first short period of the Sangha, when uh, the disciples that came forth uh, to Buddha, uh, each one of them was uh, identified as an arhat, you know, uh, as, as a, a being who has accomplished all of, who has purified his, and I will say his mind, uh, because they were all men. Uh, that's a whole other question. Uh, but uh, shortly after, as more, more people were admitted to the Sangha, and also as more people were ordained by senior by senior monks and then senior nuns, uh, these rules emerged. And the rules were, they were, there were a lot of them. You know, in, um, in Southeast Asia, in the Theravada lineage, which carries one of the uh, collections of, of precepts, there's 227 rules for monks and 311 rules for nuns. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. 
and one raspberry. Um, uh, I don't think that happened in the Sangha, but uh, maybe it did. It probably did happen someplace, but quietly. Um, so the way these rules came about you know, is like, for example, um, somebody would come to the Buddha and would say, um, Judy is piling up her food and make it into a great mound that looks like a mountain. And the Buddha would say, uh, don't do that. Write that one down. You know, or, uh, uh, oh, you see that monk? He's having sex with a knot hole in a tree. And we would say, oh, please, don't do that. Write that one down. And they, there, there were a lot of them. Uh, and some of them are uh, logical, and some of them we can see uh, maybe don't apply now, but um, they accumulated. And then when the Buddha died, when the Buddha died, um, they called on his attendant, Ananda, to recite the, recite both, recite the, uh, the precepts and also to recite the uh, all the suttas because he had a, a photographic memory uh -huh. and when he came in to recite the precepts uh, he said he before he started he said well the buddha said that after he was gone um, we should only keep the major precepts and then he, you know, they, they asked him, oh, so which are the major precepts? And Ananda said, I forgot to ask him. <laughs> um, and so they decided in the first council they were going to keep them all. And the precepts that we have, uh, the Vinaya precepts were in the uh, full or Theravada ordination school. They have all those. They have all these precepts. Uh, so then, when the Buddha came, when the Buddhism came to China. Uh, there was another text. Uh, there are two texts called the Brahma Jala, the Brahma Net Sutra. One is a Theravadan. One is an early Pali Sutra, which delineates the precepts. And the other is a Mahayana one, which delineates precepts from a Mahayana perspective. And these were translated around the year 400 in the Common Era. And in the Mahayana Brahmajala Sutra, there are uh, 10 major and 48 minor precepts, uh, with both, which are seen as bodhisattva vows. And usually what happened, at least in China, was that at ordination, you receive the full, a full Vinaya ordination, and you also took these 58 Bodhisattva precepts. So you received both streams, both ethical streams. Um, 
when Buddhism came to Japan, this was about uh, in the late um, late eighth century, uh, particularly with the founding of the Tendai School uh, in Kyoto by Saicho. Uh, Saicho argued that his monks uh, should only use the fifty-eight Mahayana precepts of the Buddha of the Brahmajala Sutra, uh, and part of his motivation was to free uh, free his order and free his monks from the authority of other uh, powerful Buddhist schools in Nara, which was in the capital. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that his commitment to the full Vinaya was that uh, that after 12 years of practice, of Tendai practice at their monastery at Mount Hiei, uh, then the monks would receive all the Vinaya precepts. Uh, but this never, this never became sort of crystallized. Uh, he was very strong. I want to read you something from Saicho. Uh, so from now on, we will not follow Shravaka ways. Shravaka is uh, uh, the way of the hearers, the way he was characterizing uh, uh, monks who took the uh, Fulvanaya precepts. We will turn away forever from from Hinayana, which is a pejorative term meaning small vehicle, dignity. I vow that I will henceforth abandon the 250 uh, Vinaya precepts. Uh, since then, uh, these Bodhisattva precepts have been transmitted from teacher to teacher, uh, and he he describes the lineage, which is often the case that they would, uh, this is the way they uh, authorized, we created author authority or authenticity by designating a lineage. He says, I have read the Buddhist teachings and I know there are strictures on dignity for both Bodhisattva monks and the Bodhisattva, and that there are pure Mahayana and pure Dhinayana teachings. Now the students of my school shall study Mahayana precepts, meditation, and wisdom, and they shall abandon inferior Hinayana precepts, practices forever. And this is, as I've been speaking in, in another context, it's like this is part of the politics of Buddhist power. Uh, so to characterize the other schools as inferior. We don't have to do that. Please don't do that. You should respect everyone. Well, actually, you should respect everyone as a Buddha. And uh, you certainly can't think of those Thai monks who are down the block as in any way inferior to us. We should learn from them and see how actually uh, wonderful their day-to-day -day practice is.
So at some point, when Dogen uh, arrived on the scene, uh, from Saicho's teachings, he designed, uh, he stripped it down, streamlined it to these 16 bodhisattva precepts that we take. And uh, the refuges, the pure precepts, and the grave precepts are major precepts. And we do this ceremony every month of Ryaku Fusats. Uh, so I want to just finish and leave time for discussion uh, with something from a lecture by Suzuki Roshi. Uh, speaking of the Bodhisattva ceremony. Before the Buddha, with this kind of observance, they tried to protect themselves from evil spirits. So they had ceremonies like this even before Buddhism. After Buddha, they also gathered lay people, monks and nuns, and recited the precepts. And those who had failed to observe the precepts would make confession. As I mentioned in passing, even today, so every uh, twice a month, uh, in the Theravada Sangha, they have a circle and they recite the whole Vinaya. And if you have not maintained a precept, before you can sit in that circle, you have to make confession to an elder. And uh, clarify your karma, and then uh, then you can join the circle for recitation. Suzuki Roshi says, the nature of precepts is to encourage and continue good practice and to end deluded practice. This is the idea of precepts. Fusatsu. Fusa means to do something, to stop some, to continue something good and to stop something bad or to stop some bad karma from arising. Ryaku means abbreviated observance, Ryaku Fusats. So in Japan, we just observe this once a month. So um, I want to leave time for, for discussion. I think there are doubtless some questions that arose in this in this context and uh, so the the floor is open and also I'm gonna I've been asked and I'm gonna try to do this um, I'm gonna repeat the question as best I understand it uh, because there's uh, some difficulty in in hearing the questions clearly when you're online uh, so I'll try to do that so, the floor is open. Yes, Anna. Um, with the atonement aspect of Fusatsu, I've found it to be helpful to think about the particulars, though I know that's not maybe the instruction. And I, I also find it difficult to hold 
the vastness of atonement without thinking about the particulars. So I guess I'm wondering what you think of that. So Hannah is, is saying that uh, it's helpful to her to think about the particularity of uh, whatever it is that she's confessing and atoning for, uh, and that, in a sense, that that's helpful, particularly given the, the vastness of uh, that framing, all my ancient interests. Is that, is that correct? So, um, some places, sometimes, when we do this ceremony, and we, we did this, we when we had uh, ordained uh, for a while, when he was abbot, Norman Fisher was convening all of the priests for San Francisco Zen Center system, and we would get together, I think, every few months and do this ceremony. But before the ceremony, we would have small groups, and we would sit in a circle, and people would make a straightforward confession. Uh, and some places they do that. Uh, I think it's, actually I think it's a lovely practice. Uh, and this is something that we can do together. But I also, I'm thinking about it. You know, I'm thinking about whether the, the particularities mean something. And they're also bound to, you know, whatever yours or my particular acts of confession might be, uh, they will, whatever any of ours are, they will resonate with each other. And also create a kind of tie, uh, not with any compulsion to confess something, uh, but uh, it might be a really helpful process. So uh, I think that would be something to think about, how to do that. Thank you. Um, I see Ken and Katie. Thank you, Megan. Thank you so much. You made me think about a lot of things, I guess. The, um, when you were talking about um, the ceremony and um, accountability and the relationship, it just brought up for me um, questions about how much can any particular community or relationship hold the repair process and what that means for vows. So to be concrete, um, a young man I know transgressed against his classmates and a very difficult situation. And he, um, they, the, the community came up with a, or the school administrators came up with a very good repair process, but the school community just couldn't hold it. You know, the other students couldn't hold it. And he is going to have some kind of repair process and he's going to leave that school and go to another because it's just every day being in the midst of that is much too difficult. Um, and I've seen that in other contexts as well. And then I think about 
my own experience of vows, and I think, you know, my most rich slash annoying experience of vow is with Ken and how we bump up against each other every day and have to hold each other accountable if we're going to stay in relationship. And so far, our relationship has been able to hold our transgressions and we've been able to repair. So I'm, I guess I'm not sure what my question is, but I guess just, you know, thinking about, you know, how we hold these vows and hold the precepts when we're not being held directly accountable, when we are, is there a difference? I think that there's a difference, and I also think that there's a context. The context, for example, between with you and Ken, is that you have both received the precepts. They have been transmitted to both of you. And by our recitation, by our receiving the precepts, uh, there is uh, what I think of as a kind of an ontological shift within our being that there's something changed in us because we have we have received these precepts and so in the simplest sense we have something to return to we have a wholesome principle to return to to you know to lead away uh in the sense of anaya from uh wrong action delusion and so we've just done that this morning. The whole community here has recited and taken into ourselves, each one of us, the precepts, which means if something, if there's a transgression, which invariably there will be, we have we have a, ref a place of refuge to return to. In the wider community, like a school, it's like everybody's not in the same, they haven't made the same agreements. You know, it's just like having communication agreements, uh, which we do often for our meetings or, or processes. So we know we've agreed on this. So if, it, if something goes wrong, we have something to return to. But if you haven't made these agreements, you cannot, it's pointless to try to close the, door, the barn door after the ship has left the harbor. <laughs> it's just that kind of mixed metaphor. <laughs> oh, thank you. Mary. Extending that question, um, and, and based on the premise that relation, relationships are based on the ability to repair. Um, it does seem to me that there's a skill set involved, even when there's a shared context, about how to repair and how to begin anew. And it may go beyond, I guess this is my question, doesn't it go beyond confession? Yes. Um, so Mary is saying, uh, that there's, you know, in the case of, of difficulty, uh, there's a skill set involved in uh, bringing about harmony. Is that a correct way to? And some resolve. And some resolution, 
Right. Um, and uh, we are imperfect. Our systems are imperfect. But um, this is, you know, this is what the, what the Buddha was trying to do with the Vinaya, was he created a, an entire uh, framework that was very, very inclusive, you know, and really touched on almost all aspects of life. So um, you had a structure, uh, a pretty horizontal structure, not an authority structure, uh, to rely on. And, and if, you read the, if you read the Vinaya texts and the Pali Suttas, they had, they had methodologies for resolving conflict. Uh, and so we would do well to learn from that and also to devise methods that are, uh, that are suitable for, for our time and place. Um, Ed. Hi, I'm, I'm just curious about what role um, forgiveness plays in the um, Bodhisattva ceremony. What role forgiveness plays in the Bodhisattva ceremony? Um, the confession I would make to you is uh, I guess I have some difficulty with forgiveness. And it's interesting because actually Sojin Roshi uh, really believes in forgiveness. And it's not that I don't believe in it or that I don't see it as necessary. I think forgiveness is my responsibility. It's something that I have to bring forth in myself as an openness of spirit. Uh, and sometimes I can do it, often I can do it, and sometimes uh, I realize I'm not exactly ready yet. But uh, I think it's implicit in this ritual that the act of confession and, re of confession and repentance and renewal uh, is An expression of forgiveness that says, yes, we are all in this together. And we've, um, we've done what we can, we've done our confession, and uh, we begin again. We begin anew based on these principles. So, I mean, I think that's, ideally, that's, that would be the case. Sue. Thank you. Wonderful oh. talk and song. Thank, that was really not helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think I almost hit the notes getting closer. Yeah, I almost hit them myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess um, when people come up to me and apologize profusely, and they're often women, men don't do that. <laughs> they don't. We Never. we don't apologize ever. No. <laughs> I'm no, sorry. That's not fair. Yeah. No, I, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Yeah. That, but, that, but 
would do what? Say, I'm really, I'm so sorry, like they caused harm, and they didn't, and it's like, how, how do you calm them down and say, you know, it's like it's okay and see it, I mean, what do you say when someone is profusely apologizing and cringing before you right. for something that I don't get it? Right, so Sue is asking uh, when someone just comes up and she's put it cringingly uh, apologizes before you. I just uh, want to hold them and say you're okay. You want to hold them and, and say you're okay. What I would say is I want to know what you're apologizing for. I want to know what you think there you're you apologizing go. for, not for what you think I think. There you go. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like, this is what I love about this ceremony that we're doing is, it's your confession. It's not, you know, it's not something, it's not transactional with another person giving them what you think they want to hear. It's actually your reflection on yourself and how you want to go forward. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to take, um, we have to be quick. Yes, I can't see who that is. I'm Salvador. Ah, yeah. Um, that's exactly what I wanted to bring up, um, the last person who was on Zoom, about within the act of um, confession and the precepts, where is the acknowledgement of forgiveness, compassion, and understanding? Because I just personally don't know if it's implicit within this practice. You know, I feel like it's there, but I just don't, I, I'm feeling it and seeing it and hearing it now, like never before, honestly, but as I move through my life, you know, I've never really felt, like, or heard the conversation of forgiveness and compassion and understanding. So what, uh, is it? What's your name again? Salvador. Salvador is saying is um, in this practice he hasn't been hearing the expression of forgiveness, compassion, and understanding uh, that we're touching on today. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, of oneself and others. I'm sorry? Of oneself and others. Has oneself and others. Of oh. oneself. Oh. Wait, I'm sorry. Of oneself and others. Forgiveness of ourselves. Forgiveness of ourselves and others. Okay. All right. Now I get it. Um, yes. Uh, you know, some of you were at uh, Biakaran Judith Ragir's talk yesterday afternoon. I don't know if you were there, Salvador. Uh, I think what she was saying is we need to articulate that more clearly as an element of our practice uh, that there needs to be self-forgiveness self-compassion and my feeling is that's a that's a starting place it's also true that um another dimension, and this is, opens a whole other issue, 
uh, is that there are places where words are not sufficient, where apologies are not sufficient, where sitting down together to agree is not, not sufficient. Uh, and I will say, you know, at the risk of kind of opening this can of worms, um, if one is in a circumstance where there is a, a pretty significant imbalance of power, that's not subject to words necessarily. Words may help, but there actually has to be uh, something, there has to be action that rebalances that in order to, uh, so that one person is not powerful, privileged over another. And that involves self-reflection on everyone's part. So maybe I'm sort of taking this and running in a slightly different direction, but uh, I think we need to be talking about what you were talking about. Uh, and uh, I think that actually those conversations are uh, happening more and more in the community. So it's time to end. We really need to end. Um, and I thank you and feel free to, to uh, write me an email or stop me on the path to talk about any of this more. Um, and I, you know, my, the center for me is the Sangha. It's the model for what, uh, for how I've learned to live. And I really encourage us to do that all together. Thank you.